Let's begin with a word of prayer. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, by the humiliation of thy Son, didst raise up, up the fallen world, grant unto thy faithful ones perpetual gladness, and those whom thou hast delivered from the dangers from the dangers of everlasting death, do thou make partakers of eternal joys. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth, um, who, sorry, excuse me, who, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, everyone God, world without end. Amen. That's the, that's the good old collect from the TLH uh, for this last Sunday. Um, so we are in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and um, you have two things there first let me, before we get into it. Um, so you have your full study that we'll have for this entire time, and then this is like a little poster of like a visual introduction to the book of James. So, you know, you take your time going through it. We're not going to go through it here. You will see some interesting things. Let me give you some background on the letter of James here. Um where uh, you see that at the top here next to uh, James, you'll see Jacob, because it's really, it's kind of strange. I don't know why, don't ask me why. I, I at one time knew at the seminary, but like a lot of things that I learned at the seminary, they just kind of like went away because um, I didn't bother to really refresh them. But if you look in the Greek, um, it's Jacobu, so Jacob is the name of James. And that's why whenever you hear also, like the King James version of the Bible, you'll hear that it's in the form of Jacobian, uh, Jacobian English, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so if, if, if you've ever wondered why it says Jacobian for the King James, that's why. They're synonymous names, James and Jacob. Somehow the Latinization carried over in a strange way. Don't ask me how, but it, anyways. So um, as it says, there are there are many Jacobs in the New Testament, even the, the, the other Jameses in the New Testament, right? Um, James, the son of Zebedee, the son of Alphaeus. Um, you see that this James is a different James. Does anybody know exactly who this James is? I don't know which Brother James it is. Yeah, the brother of our Lord. Um, yeah, so he was um, he was the leader of the um, Jerusalem church, the bishop, um, after Peter. So Peter was the leader for a while there during the beginning of Acts. And then when Peter goes off to um, proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles um, on his journeys, he... Uh, he he doesn't appoint him, but James gets appointed by the church. He is uh, he is appointed to that position by the church, um, and that's who you see later on in the book of Acts when they have the controversy about when they bring the Gentiles into the church. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we deal with that? And they have you know because what is it? There are some of the circumcision party that will say you have to believe in Jesus and abide by the Torah, the law. You have to be, like you must be circumcised. You must eat kosher. You must do all these things in accordance with the law. And uh, after hearing everything, they don't vote on anything. 
But James, being the bishop of Jerusalem, makes a proclamation of what the decision is, right? Um, and they accept it as good, and then they send uh, the proclamation out to the other churches, and they accept it, right? It was basically um, that they don't need to be circumcised. The Gentiles don't need to be circumcised as long as they abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality and, you know, maybe like a few other things. I think those are the main ones, though. That as long as they do that, we should not hinder them from being part of the church, right? So um, he has a lot of pull. He's, he's got a lot of say. Um, now, to go back into who he is familiarly, he is the brother of our Lord. What does that mean? Um, what kind of controversy might that bring up if someone hears that James is the brother of our Lord? What kind of controversy do you think that might stir up? That maybe our Lord isn't divine. Oh, okay. I was going to go for something else. Um, maybe. I could see that. He for sure is man, but yeah, maybe it brings his divinity. Maybe it does. The problem, the problem that the early church had, though, is not that they had a problem with his divinity. They had a problem with his humanity, Right? Um, the biggest controversy about Jesus in the early days was not whether or not he was divine because they attested to the great things that he did and that he rose from the dead and that this, these were all taken as true. So, but then what was brought into question was his humanity. So that's not necessarily the controversy that would have been brought into uh, fact. In fact, it would have probably strengthened the confession of his humanity, right? Um, that that humanity and the, that the humanity and the divinity dwell within the one person of Christ, right? What other controversy though might come up if you say that James is the brother of our Lord? The Virgin Mary was never a virgin for life, right? Yeah, so it brings into question the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, <clears throat> this is a stance that a lot of people will get pretty up in arms about. Um, the Catholics. Yeah, I like to say the Roman Catholics, right? The Papists. Um, <laughs> our, our lost brothers in the Roman Church, right? Um, we agree on so many things, but these things we... There are certain things that we just say... Our big gripe against the Roman Catholics is that you can't force us to believe certain things that are of a matter of conscience, right? Um... Would it surprise you to know that Luther always upheld the perpetual virginity of Mary? Why did he do that? Well, I mean, he was raised that way, right? Oh, and and that's and what he'd been taught for. That's what he'd been taught. Years. He at one point also, uh, from what I looked at recently, he he also believed in at least at the beginning of when he was still still fresh. You know, it's like when fifteen seventeen hit. Luther didn't all of a sudden just believe everything he believed on the day that he died, right? He grew in what he was to say, well, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense according to the Bible, and like the church doing this and saying this and doing that, right? Um, so at the beginning, I think it was like in 15, in like the, in like 1520, right? So like a couple of years after he penned the 95 Theses, he still wrote about how uh, the Virgin Mary was without sin, Right, that the 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 ah man the 
man, the immaculate conception of Mary, right? He still held that, but then later on he said, this is not right. This is not, like there's nowhere in the Bible that says this, so why should we be forced to believe it, right? He also later on said that it would be okay for us to say the Hail Mary without the prayer to her because was it the the pre-Trent, I know I'm getting into the weeds here, but he said, you know, on some level as a liturgical form, it wouldn't be bad to commemorate Mary in saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Full stop. Not going into Lord, uh, or it's like, oh, Mary, mother of God, pray for us, us sinners now and in the hour of our death. He said, just cut that part out. You know why he says that's okay to say though? Because it's in the Bible. That's what Elizabeth says to Mary when she comes and sees her. And when John leaps in her womb, right? So he says, that's not necessarily a bad thing to say, blessed is Mary. I'm not gonna pray to you, but blessed are you. In fact, Mary even says that, and we sang that in the um, Magnificat tonight. She said, you know, um, um, all generations will call me blessed, right? Will call me blessed. So it's like, yeah, you are blessed. Not gonna pray to you, yeah. but you're blessed, right? I mean, she was, she was, um, she is a good um, example of faith, right? I mean, Gabriel comes to her and says, "Hail," he, he, he says, "Hail," he says, "Hail Mary," right? Hi Mary, hello Mary, right? And he says, he gives her this prophecy that she will conceive. A son and bear him with still being a virgin and she says how can this be for I have not known a man right and this is faith that seeks understanding and so she and and and, and he tells her exactly you know the Lord has found has favored you right greetings all highly favored one right why it never says why it never says that she was without sin. It never says that she did anything to deserve this, but it really shows God's great grace shown to her and the faith that he has granted to her to believe what God has spoken to her, right? So all in all, that is to say, we don't venerate Mary in the sense that we say prayers to her. It's really kind of strange when you look at Roman Catholic prayers and, and even Eastern Orthodox prayers and they'll say things like, you know, I, I mean, I saw, I saw recently in, a, in, a, in like an Eastern Orthodox prayer book, the prayer to Mary was longer than the prayer to Jesus, right? And you go, no, that's not right. That's, that's, that's absolutely backwards, right? In fact, you shouldn't have a prayer to Mary. Um, so somewhere along the line, the commemoration or the honoring of Mary as the mother of God went too far. It went way too far. It was one of the things that the Reformation tried to correct. But that is to say that even after the Reformation, there are still some Lutherans who believe that Mary was perpetually a was perpetually a virgin for the rest of her life. Yeah. I noticed that reading the uh, Kretzmann commentary not too mm -hmm. long ago. Yeah. The, uh, then this was like the 1920s, and the author was like, yeah, whenever the Gospels say the brothers of the Lord, it really means cousins. Uh, and I'm like, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, <coughs> but maybe not. Right, right. You know, would it, would it surprise you to know that what Luther wrote in the Small Called Articles 
And I think elsewhere, I think Melanchthon wrote in the Apology or, or the Augsburg Confession, I forget which one exactly off the top of my head, they say that she's the ever virgin. Would that surprise you to know that when I, when I subscribe to the Book of Concord, I subscribe to the Perpetual Virgin? I, that's not really true. But the thing is, is that it's one of those things that's been a topic of debate, possible controversy, but it's one that's a matter of conscience, right? Because there are different ways to interpret things. Several of the arguments for the perpetual virginity of Mary is that uh, when you see in the Gospels, you know, uh, that his, his uh, mother and his brothers come and try to speak and try to just talk some sense into him. And they say, your, your, ah, your mother and your brothers are here. And he, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers, but those who hear God's word, you know, and believe, right? That, that sort of thing. So he's not, he's not denying that Mary is his mom, but he's putting distance there and saying the familial relation is one thing, but what I come to fulfill is a kingdom that is not of this world, right? And then people come and they say, is not this the brother of James and, and uh, James and Jude and um, I think Joseph as well. And, and it's just like, and his, and his, sisters are here um, with us as well. So he at least had two sisters or whatever. And so you go, see, when you read Kretzmann, he's very traditional in that way to say, one interpretation is that they were cousins that were adopted by Joseph and Mary later on because they were destitute or they lost their parents or something like that, right? That's one that's one explanation. Say that. How, how <laughs> so does he get that? Far. That's a possibility. That's one of the looser. That's one of the looser explanations. I'll admit. Okay. Right. The other explanation is that Joseph was possibly married before he was married to Mary, and he had children with his previous marriage, and then she died. That's a thought, and it's a valid thought on some level. But the thing is that it's not provable because they never talk about. You know, and then they left and went down to Egypt with Jesus and James and Jude and all the girls, you know, it's like, and all these other whatever, you know. So it doesn't say that they were there. They could have been. It's a possibility. Um, any thoughts about those two possibilities? Just to start. I know I'm kind of throwing a lot at you, but it brings up some questions, right? Why does Mary have to be perpetually? Right. Mm, that's a good question. It seems like they're just inventing ways to prove this thought. But yeah. well, they're thought... inventing ways to deify her. Right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if it's a deification. I'd say that it's maybe just like, again, veneration gone extreme. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess that's what um, I'd say that it's this. So there were some abuses that came about from this idea that Mary was always a virgin because later on, I mean, at, at, at first in the church, like priests, pastors, right, they could get married. And even in the Eastern church, that's still the case. There became a rule on some level that you couldn't be a bishop and be married. You had to be single and celibate, right? That sort of thing. But the thing is, is that eventually over time in the Western church, they venerated virginity so much that they bound their priests to celibacy, right? They bound them to that because they said that is a high virtue that you must attain to, to be godly, right? And so that, and Luther talks about that and he says, it's just like Paul says, if you have that gift, fine. 
It's fine. To force that on somebody is abominable. It's diabolical, actually, because then you are shunning the good gift of marriage and children, right? If God would so give it to you. Adam was the first. Priest, right? Or yeah, a pastor, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's married. <laughs> right? Um, technically, also the patriarchs like uh, Jacob and, uh, I mean, even, even Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was was a, a pastor to his family in that sense, right? Aaron. Carrying on the word. Yeah. Aaron was married. Aaron was married, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and Levite priests could be married, you know? Zechariah. Um, in the New Testament, who's the father of John the Baptist, he was married, right? So it's one of those things that just like over time, the veneration of virginity, which is, you know, it's nothing to be shunned. It's, it's, it's nothing to be snorted at as far as chastity, right? Um, celibacy, though, was venerated as something that was really high and must be attained to be seen as godly. So the problem is, is that why was Mary always seen, uh, why, why was she seen as perpetually the virgin? At some point in time, not that I know of, I don't know of any direct quotation. There's a lot of things from the early church that just aren't written down aside from the scriptures, right? The other earliest work we have from around this time is like the didache. It's like the teaching. It's ascribed to the apostles. It's never been proven that they actually wrote it. But we just don't have a whole lot that says, you know, well, Anne Mary is always known as the virgin because she always was a virgin. End of story. Next thing. We don't have these things written down, right? So we have to go off of tradition. And there was a tradition, I think, at least from what I know, and I'm sure I could read more about this, and I will if y'all would like me to, and if you know of anything, let me know. What I know is that... Um, she was always known as the Virgin Mary. That's really just how we know her, right? I mean, even in the Apostles' Creed and in all the creeds, well, except for the, the Athanasian, right? Well, anyways, in the creeds, she's known as the Virgin Mary, right? So she's known as the ever-Virgin. Um, my understanding and the way that I like to interpret that in the way that, and, and I know it's kind of threading the needle, it's kind of like sitting on the fence a little bit, but what I like to think is this, um, she was just always known as the virgin. Even though she had kids, she was always known as the virgin Mary who gave birth. To Jesus. Yeah, to Jesus. The one who matters. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And that's the main point, right? Is that, is that Jesus gets left out of this discussion a lot. Um, plus there's also the um, issue in uh, Matthew's gospel where it says that uh, Joseph did not know her until after she gave birth. So when you say that he didn't know her until after, that's a heavy uh, indication that the marriage was consummated at some point in time. That's so, almost indisputable. Huh? It's almost indisputable. Right. So on some level, you can just say, well, okay, we can get into the whole cousin thing or kids from a previous marriage thing. When it says that he never knew, he, he, he didn't know her until after, it's, it's a pretty safe assumption to say that the, that the marriage was consummated. She was never technically and strictly a virgin after that, which I, I, I don't even know if you could call it a marriage without consummation, to be honest with you. You know, it's not really, it's just kind of an arrangement, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's the thought. 
Um, that's my thought on it, is that that's always her title. She's known as the Virgin. Um, well, born of the you know, Virgin Mary at that time. You want to augment the Apostles' Creed now for that? Or? <laughs> <laughs> it's called a council. Yeah, it's, it's called this big old council. We can't even agree with the East on whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from this Father and the Son. Let's, let's dive into the whole issue of Mary. That's yes, right. So anyways, that's my spiel on James and whether or not he is the brother of Jesus, like properly speaking. I, if someone wants to think that he's a cousin, I mean, even so... Uh, well, what about the word in the Greek? Like, do they, can, the Greeks have different words for cousins and stepbrothers and brothers and adopted brothers? And, not really. No? No. They don't? No, not really. But they have five different words for love. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Man, that's, that's interesting. Take it up with the Greeks. I don't yeah, know. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, I think they do have those words, like stepbrother or just like adopted or something like that, some sort of looser familial relation. But I think that would have been a much more rare word. And in Koine Greek and common Greek at the time, they're not going to dive into those. I mean, that's not the main point. Who cares whether he's the half-brother, step-brother, adopted brother, whatever. It doesn't really matter, especially in the light of faith, right? Because Jesus then calls his disciples his brothers, right? So it doesn't really matter. On, and, and that's, a, 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 again, the other thing is that Jesus, family is important. Do not mishear me on this. Family is important. You know, um, love your parents, give honor to them, love your brothers and sisters in the flesh and take care of them. And also understand that the family of God is transcendent, right? It, it, it acknowledges that and it gives the honor that is due to that and acknowledges that we are a part of a greater family of God, of brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think that's one thing that's lost on all this. So if someone comes to me and says, no, you're wrong, James has to be the cousin, I mean, my question will be, why? Right? Uh, but the main point there, I think, is that I can say, fine, it's a possibility, but don't force me to believe that. Right? Don't force me to believe that is your explanation. Um, and don't force me to believe that he's like half-brother. Well, I mean, like, he is a half-brother if he is a brother kind of thing by Joseph in some sense, right? But don't, don't, well, you know, it's just this whole thing of like, That's don't what my conscience feels. Yeah, don't force me to believe these things because I will agree with you that Mary will always be known as the Virgin Mary, right? Um, ever Virgin can be a, t a titular thing, a title. My, m I've kind of exhausted this, I'm sure, but... Um, it's, it's also very interesting too. You'll see this as a possibility that um, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew, um, Joseph's father's name is Jacob. And so if you're going to believe that, you know, James, James and Jude um, are brothers of Jesus uh, from Joseph and Mary, it would make sense that Joseph would want to name his son Jacob or James because that's his father's name. It's a family name. Jesus is not a family name, right? And so then later on you get Jude as well and things like that. So it's kind of interesting to see. It's like, it's a strong, 
it's a strong connection to say that he is actually the you know the half brother of our Lord. So I, I I say all that because it's I think it's fairly interesting. It kind of gives you the mind of where the church was at at some point in time to say, for some reason they they thought this was important. We may scoff at it and say it's no big deal, but I mean a lot of a lot of time has been spent on this issue, and I figured it's, it'd be good for us to spend like. 15, 20 minutes on it. Um, <laughs> and it's not bad, you know. Mention the name of your kid after. Christians and answers. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Mention the your kids after your grandparents. Some, I don't think they had juniors in that particular time. <coughs> like nah. a Joseph Jr. No, they only would say. Yeah, they'd say things like, you know, uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Right? That's how you would tell who was who. Or, and I think that would get pretty confusing. Jacob, the son of Jacob. Yeah. Which is why typically fathers wouldn't name their sons after themselves, kind yeah. of thing, like juniors yeah, or like, second. That's or kind of my perception too. Uh, it's kind of a cultural thing. They also didn't have last names. They were they were known by their tribes, right, and uh, by their lines that they're from. So, all right. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, who wants to read James chapter one verses one through eight? Let's start it. I'll read it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all he does. All right. So short and sweet this week. Um, let's look at that first part there for look. Well, we have, we have look, discuss, apply. So for look, verse 1, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Um, James is writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered by persecution. Most acknowledge that the writer of this epistle was James, the brother of the Lord. He said in Galatians 1.19, where Paul says as much, right? Um, uh, I'm going to quibble with this a little bit. He's not writing primarily to Jewish Christians. I mean, the church in Jerusalem was scattered. And in, and in, in Jerusalem, you didn't have only ethnic Jews that believed. You also had proselytes, right? So Gentiles that converted. Um, it was predominantly Jewish, but it wasn't only Jewish. Uh, or only of the Israelite, the Hebrew nation. So I just want to quibble with that a little bit. So he's not only Jewish Christians, but I think it's also just Christians in general um, because it's the 12 tribes of the dispersion. I mean, if, if the church is known as the new, um, if the church is known now, um, if the church is now known as the true um, the true um, 
Israel, excuse me, if the church is known as the true Israel, then this is for all of us, for all Christians. It's not just to Jewish Christians, but to all, right? I just want to hammer that distinction home. Um, I think scripture is written to he who has an ear, let him hear. Exactly, right. So it's not just to one ethnicity or the other. Absolutely. It's yeah. like targeted. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know why they have to say that. It's you know They don't say it's only to the Jewish Christians. I mean, obviously, it's beneficial for the entire church. That's why it made it into the canon of scripture, right? And Paul says we're all we're all through the seed of Abraham through through Jesus Christ through faith right yeah absolutely yeah so anyways I I kind of get a little worried I not worried I, I just get a little bothered when they start saying like you know this is to Jewish Christians it's like I'm not just to Christians buddy you know anyways that's just my little beef um so the Christians the first discussion question the Christians to whom James is writing are suffering persecution how should Christians think about persecution. What does he say? Consider it pure joy. Yeah. Pure joy. That sounds kind of funny. <laughs> blessed are you. Yeah, blessed are you when they right, persecute you, right? And speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So yeah, you should count it joy. I mean, you, even in the book of Acts, you see that like when... What is it like Paul is stoned? I think it's in like what three times, yeah. He's, but like he's he's stoned in um, where is it exactly? It says like, oh, it's so great. He's stoned in Iconium, I believe. Um, don't they think he's dead? Yeah, they thought it was dead. Um, it's interesting, yeah. It's great. Well, like, what does it say? It says, you know, yeah. No, he's at Lystra. Sorry, this is Acts 14. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when, the, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel of that city, they had many disciples, right? So it's just kind of funny. Stone him, and then he gets up, and he keeps on going. But there's also the stuff where it's like in Acts 13. It says... Um, uh, it says, when the disciples heard, or sorry, when the Gentiles heard, um, you know, that the gospel is for them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, uh, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the, of, of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's, that's just wonderful to hear that, right? You, so you see an example there with the disciples, the apostles, when they say, get out of here, and just go, you know, and go on dancing down the road, going to the next spot, being glad that you were to face persecution, right? Wasn't that a something you had to do before... You had to like shake off like Gentile dust off of your feet before you could approach the temple. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe. I, I don't know if I've, I've, I've heard that somewhere like that before. You certainly clean yourself, right? Uh -huh. So, and if you're, if you're defiled in any way, use a purification for that. And that might be shaking off some dust for sure, just in case you came in contact with the Gentile. I, I wouldn't doubt it. That might've been more of the tradition of the elders than anything. I don't think mm -hmm. that's anywhere in, 
uh, Leviticus or Deuteronomy or anything like that. But yeah, it's interesting. Same thought though, I guess. Shake off the dust. But the same thing that Jesus says, right? If they do not receive you, um, then you shake off the dust from your feet and you move on, right? Uh, but they count it joy, say. They and there's other spots there too where they shit where where Paul shakes off the dust from his robes and says, you know, your blood be on your own head. I'm going to the Gentiles. And they rejoice that they could face persecution for the Lord's sake. So, I mean, it's, it's not on, uh, um, I, I guess there's, it's, it's not unprecedented that Christians have had joy in the face of persecution, right? And that's what James is telling us to do, right? Have pure joy when you're called to endure persecution. Um, Something for sure to keep in mind, especially as the days grow darker in this world uh, for the church, I think. It's, it's, it's coming if it's not already here. You probably, I, I know I've said that many times before, but I think we should really prepare ourselves for persecution for sure. Um, so how do we prepare ourselves, right? So think through the phrase, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Can you explain the process that James is talking about here? He kind of goes through it a little bit. If you can kind of expound on what he says. I think it brings you closer to God. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How so? How would it bring you closer to God? Well, that's where you turn. That's right. That's right. You turn to God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hey, you turn to God because, well, why? No other answers. Yeah, there's no one else, right? He's, he's the only one who can really help you, right? Um, absolutely. So when he says, for you know that the testing of your faith, your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I, I know the, what the NIV says, uh, that you may be mature, right? Is that what it says? Yes, yeah, and steadfastness is replaced with perseverance. Yeah, so it's synonymous there. And actually it is synonymous for it to say mature, Synonymous with perfect. Um, uh, I guess I want to tackle that here. I was say mature as in getting older or ripe or what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, older um, growth, right? Growing into the mature manhood as uh, St. Paul says in Ephesians, right? That we, that, that we would not be like children tossed to and fro upon every wind and wave of doctrine, Right? So, and which, which we'll get into here in a minute with, with the, uh, the, um, the uh, double-minded man, right? But we'll, we'll save that for now. So perfection is something, when you hear that you can become perfect in this life, do you believe that or not? That you can become perfect? In this life? I don't think so. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's our natural inclination. I wonder, though, if, and, 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 you know, certainly there are holiness movements that have come about, like the Wesleyans and I think the Nazarenes or whatever. They are holiness movements in Christianity. They're sects, really, I think, in, in a lot of ways, where they say that you can't obtain perfection. And on some level, I don't blame them for wanting to shoot for that. Because I think that where they've fallen off on one side of the road, we might have fallen off on the other side of the road by saying, I can never be perfect, so therefore, I'm not going to say this, but I'm never going to try. 
You see what I'm saying? So when you have these people in the holiness movements, like the Wesleyans, because I actually got into it with one guy. I didn't get into it, but he disagreed with me. I said, we can't be perfect in this life. And he said, well, I believe that we can be. I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't need Jesus, but we are perfect and complete in him kind of thing. And we can be to a certain thing. So it depends on what you mean by perfect, right? Only Jesus was perfect. That's right. So when you look at things like this, where it says, um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of, of, of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word for perfect in the Greek, the root word, well, Technically, in the Greek, it is um, teleoi. And so it comes from the word teleos. And that is the root word for what Jesus said on the cross when in John's gospel, he says to telestai, it is finished. It is perfected. It is complete. That's what the NIV says is complete. That's right. It says maybe mature and complete. Right. And then... Um, so you see that there, um, let me just make sure I'm getting this right. Well, it's kind of interesting because the holocleroi is the wholeness, the completeness. The teleoi is the perfection. Um, so maybe they're kind of switching things. I don't know. Um, maybe they kind of, they made their own interpretive choices for the NIV. I don't exactly know their reasons for that one. But in the ESV, I think it's right to say that it is perfect. But our perfection is never in ourselves. It is only in the completeness that comes from Christ. Right? And likewise, perfection for the Christian is reached. Right? And you can see how unattainable this is with, with our own selves, by ourselves. Perfection for the Christian is reached when he is able to understand and fulfill the commandment to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, right? Where do you usually see that happening? Okay, where do you see it as the, the, the grand example that, that that's done? Who does that? Christ. Jesus does, that's right. Christ does it, and then who does it after him? St. Stephen. Oh, yeah. The yeah. first martyr. That's right. Yeah. He says, Lord, do not hold this against them. Right? And then his face is like an angel, and then they stone him, and he dies. Right? Um, we'll get into Stephen later on, because it's really kind of cool. This is a prelude to what's coming next time, is that where, oh, where he says, um, uh, when he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You know what that word crown is in Greek? Stephanon. Stephanon. Did he have Stephen in mind when he wrote that? I don't know. But I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about because he would have been there to witness or to hear about and be in Jerusalem when Stephen was stoned and killed, right? And so when his name means crown, and then later on you see that in uh, Revelation, what, 19, right? Be, be thou... Be thou faithful unto life, and you will be thou faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. Right. So it's just kind of an interesting thing that what happens when you are perfect and complete in Christ is that you you die. <laughs> right? You die <laughs> because 
I mean, what else is there for you, right? And that's also what we should keep in mind as well. What do we believe as far as baptism, right? From the small catechism, what does it mean to baptize with water? What does is, what is baptizing with water indicate? That we should, through daily contrition and repentance, be drowned, you know, drown the old man so that the new man may come forth and live forever in righteousness and purity forever. So we, we do believe that perfection is possible, but not without Christ. And perfection is possible, but there's always the struggle, right? We are simultaneously sinner and justified saint at the same time, right? So it's like, we are perfect. We are complete in Christ, right? We don't believe in all of this stuff where, you know, you, you go off in a cloister like a monk and you pray all the time and that's what makes you perfect and holy, right? We believe that we are perfect and complete in Christ. So maybe just have that in your mind as a bit of a pushback against this idea that we can never be perfect and complete, right? You're right in one sense. We cannot be perfect and complete by what we do, but we are perfect and complete in Christ, and that faith is always maturing by facing persecution and temptation. By facing persecution and temptation, we are growing in steadfastness of faith by turning to the one who was tempted for our sake, by turning to the one who was persecuted for our sake, by turning to the one who died for our sake, right? So that's what it is, is that perfection is never by itself, it is always in light of the perfect one Christ. Yeah. Does that kind of help? Does that make more sense now? Because otherwise you kind of go through that and you go, perfect and complete. Oh, man. How did this make it in the Bible? I think that's kind of what Luther was at too, right? Is he was like, how did this get in the Bible? That's very confusing. But I mean, it's one of those things where, like you said earlier before we started, um, you can't read James first. You cannot read James first. You should read you you should read Romans first because this is what it, Romans tells you. This is how you're saved. This is what Christ has done for you. James, you go to James and you say, "Now this is what your life should look like as a Christian, right? Because you're gonna face trial, you're gonna per face persecution, and we're gonna see how James agrees with Romans three later on, even First Peter one at the end here. So I just want to say that. Um, so when we endure trials because we are believers, you know, our faith is immediately put to the test. We're put to the fire. We have to, we, we are forced on some level to um, trust or deny our Lord, right? Um, and we have, you know, certain decisions or choices to make in that sense. And the only decision really that we have within ourselves is whether or not we're going to reject what God has for us, right? So the question is, when we face persecution, should we deny that we know Christ? Should we compromise on some point of our belief? Should we stay silent? Um, you know, it depends. We're going to see about, well, okay, so deny that we know Christ? No, don't do that. Um, should we compromise on some point of our belief? No, don't do that. Remain silent? Maybe when it comes to saying certain things and not others, right? I've heard when a question is asked, like not in, not in faith of wanting to know. Not in good They're faith. They're just kind of like proposing a question to kind of like rub it in your face that this is a bunch of. Yeah. 
baloney or whatever you want to yeah, say. Yeah, 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 right. Like Pilate asking Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus is like, why do you ask? So mm-hmm. he said so. Or, or Jesus says, you know, because because you don't know the truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? It's like, I just told you. <laughs> right. Or or someone that comes to you and says, okay, so you're a Christian. So, I mean, can God create a mountain that he can't climb up? Hmm. Yeah, and you just go, just get out of here. You don't, you don't really want to know the answer. It's just... That's such a ridiculous question. Yeah. It's like, can he make can he make an object so big that he can't lift it? Get out of here. You don't care. You're not really ask, asking me a question. Yeah, you're not. You're just playing little games, right? Mm-hmm. It's bad faith. So yeah, you can say, I'm not going to talk to you. It's just ridiculous. Come to me when you actually want to actually know something, right? But the thing is, is that when you're put to the test about your faith, let's say at your job or 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 you know with your family or whatever. And someone says, you know, how can you believe this? Or, you know, Christians are bigots or homophobes or whatever. And, and you have to say, no, we love all people. We just want people not to sin in such gross ways. Or we, we want them to repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, do you stay silent? Do you risk your job for that? Right? Those are the questions you have to ask um, that, that I'm, you know, thankfully not in a position to have to have to um, have an answer for, for for myself. I have a pr- pr- pretty good job security, I think, when it comes to matters of faith, right? Um, typically, right? It depends. But um, the, but the thing is, is that I don't have to face an HR department, right? I don't have to face possible persecution on that level where you know my livelihood is taken away just by the simple fact that I'm a Christian. So there's a lot more people nowadays who will have to face that. So you're going to have to ask yourself, you know, how do I answer? What do I say? Um, and things like that, right? But if we do not undergo trials, we would not be called on to make those decisions, but nor would we have a chance to take a stand, right? Nor would we have the opportunity to go to God for strength or to give uh, a good confession for our faith, right? So count it all joy. That you're given the opportunity. Count it all joy when God gives you the, the adversaries to come at you so that you can say, thank you for asking, and I'd love to tell you about Jesus Christ. Right? Do what you want to me. God will take care of me. Right? Count it all joy because you have an opportunity to uh, be given strength by God, to have your faith strengthened as well. So as we have... the um, you know, so as we have the opportunity to do this, we know that God will give us strength. Um, and he also replaces any maybe creature comfort or certain happiness that we had in something. And he replaces it um, with a greater measure of joy in the Holy Spirit. So he takes your job away, right? Or he takes your home away. Or he takes away, you know, whatever stuff that might keep you com- comfortable you know, um, the more things that are taken away, the less distractions you have to see that you really were relying on God the whole time, right? So when he takes these things away from you, count it all joy that he's removed the obstacles on some level to say, I mean, I, I've got this little card that's on my um, dresser at home. It's a little card that says, when you're in a place where you've realized that the only one you can rely on is God, you're in a pretty good place, right? 
you're in a pretty good place. When you have all, when you have certain things taken away from you and you say, wow, now that that's gone, I have the ability to actually see more clearly what God wants for me to do, right? And what he does exactly to take care of me, yeah? Um, that's hard to say when you're in the midst of comfort, right? Nobody pursues, nobody should pursue persecution willy-nilly, right? No one should pursue persecution in general. It's like jump in the middle of a mob, you know, so that for the possibility that you might get martyred, right? That's not necessarily the wisest thing to do. In fact, the early church kind of frowned on that. But if you were chosen for persecution, you could flee, but there is greater joy and um, the honor given to those who endure the persecution unto death and they will be given the crown of life, right? Something to think about and things we should think about in this day and age. So um, when we are given joy in the Holy Spirit, we are, we are given the desire to persevere, right? When our faith is increased and we say, thank you, God, for taking away those things and now I can see more clearly my faith and what it is that's most, most important, it gives you the desire to persevere. And as you persevere, your faith grows, right? So we become complete and we don't lack in anything as we go through our lives giving a good confession for our faith. Yeah. Who would have thought there was so much there in this little Barton of James, right? Sorry, I'm kind of squeaking like a mouse here, but um, any questions so far on this? Any thoughts? I think modern Christianity looks at it the exact opposite way. Mm, yeah. Like when bad things and trials come your way, <coughs> that's the devil. Yeah. And when you win the lottery or something like that, oh man, that's that's God blessing you. Right. Yeah. When now I'm reading this and I'm like, well, maybe that's the opposite. Yeah. Because that's more getting into the prosperity thing and yeah. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the, go back to Job, right? Uh, go back to Job. Who afflicted him? It was the devil, but with the permission and the go ahead of God Himself. Right? The devil cannot afflict us more than what God allows. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it is, it can be the devil. Spiritual attack is satanic, right? But keep this in mind he is God's devil, right? He only does unwittingly what God wants him to do. Right? He thinks that he's in control, but God is really the one directing him in a certain way, um, suggesting things to him to say, maybe try this one, or maybe try that one, maybe try this little thing. And, and the devil goes for it, but he'll also say, but don't go this far. And Satan begrudgingly, I think, abides by God's rule, right? Um, or thinks, it's, thinks that it was his idea all along, because we know how Satan can be. So anyway, so yeah, I mean, Satan does play a role in afflicting us, but sometimes God really does afflict us directly for our good as a chastising of his sons, right? Like we said, like he says in Proverbs and in Hebrews, right? That, um, you know, my son, do not 
regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Right? It is for your good. Yeah. Persecution is for your good. Uh, again, the, that's not something you should necessarily just run towards and seek out wholeheartedly. If it comes, it comes. But um, count it all joy nonetheless. Right? Any other thoughts? That's a good one. Modern Christianity is opposed to this. Or doesn't really know what to do with it, I'd say. Yeah. Because you don't really want to think of God as... You always want to think of the devil as the one that's doing all the bad stuff. Yeah. If, if However you de define good and bad. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Which we'll get to later on when we see, um, you know, where, where we say, like, you know, um, that every good and perfect... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Right? We get we get into verse seventeen on that one. We'll save that for later, though. Uh, right now, we're just getting to verse eight. Any other thoughts about that? The uh, verses two and uh, two through four. Mm -hmm. All right. So. Give me that time. Um, so, next question. In the face of what James says about considering persecution to be a blessing, we might wonder if we are up to it. So what encouragement does James give us in verse 5? Ask for wisdom. Yeah. Who gives wisdom? God. That's right. God gives us wisdom. So, and he will give us wisdom. So in this context, you know, wisdom is... The insight to handle trials in a God-pleasing way, right? Wisdom is, someone said this morning, they said, you know, it's, it's knowing when to keep your mouth shut, right? Or, you know, when to, so knowing when not to say things and knowing when to say things and what to say, right? It is wisdom. But, I mean, it doesn't just come by osmosis, right? Uh, growing in wisdom takes time. It actually takes effort. But most importantly, it takes faith, right? It's what James is saying here. It takes faith. Because if you go to Proverbs... I was just I was just thinking. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Proverbs 1-7. Oh, very good. Or 1-6, maybe. Um, let me test you on this. That's 1-7, yeah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um... But then later on, I think it also says, um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, right? But that is to say, you drop in the middle of Proverbs, you say, I'm just going to drop in the middle of somewhere random. Um, you go, um, uh, <laughs> You may go like, you say like, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Oh, great, thank you. All right, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, it's like, all right, so what, right? Yeah, so uh, that's Proverbs 14, uh, verse 10. The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Okay, so what, right? What does that, what does that have to do with anything about anything? 
Um, but that's part of wisdom, right? It has everything to do with every part of life. You go to, you go back to like even Proverbs, what? Um, uh, I mean, here's something kind of interesting. What do you do with this? Proverbs 11, verse 12. Whoever belittles his, his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. You go, oh, okay. I can kind of see what, what that has to do with something, right? Right? Uh, but why? What does it matter? Yeah? Uh, you can't understand these things apart from God giving you wisdom to know when to use that, right? And how to use that. Um, so, I mean, what is it? Neighbor's doing something that's annoying you. Yeah, right. Suck it up and keep your mouth shut, man. Keep your mouth shut and go help him or something. Or or something, or like, don't talk about him behind his back or something. Yeah. So exactly. It's like, but so what? Remember the commandments. Exactly. Remember, remember the commandments, the fear of the Lord, right? Fear, love, and trust in God above all things, including what he says to do in our lives, right? And do that in faith, right? Without faith, it means nothing. Yeah. So the Proverbs give wisdom and the Proverbs cross-reference with the rest of the Bible gives you wisdom and understanding on how to live your life. But if you're only reading as, if you only read the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth, you miss the point, right? It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It has the gospel, right? But it also does have the right way of life and the right way to live, right? So, you cannot get that, though, from just reading Proverbs over and over and over again, thinking that it's just going to soak in and that you're going to be the wisest man ever. Without faith, you're still a fool, right? You're still a fool. So, you, and, the only, and the only one that gives us faith is who? The Lord. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, God himself. He's the only one that gives us faith to believe. So, therefore, he gives us wisdom. So, it's one of those things where you say... God will give us wisdom. He will tell us exactly like Jesus said, do not be anxious about what you will say, but you know the Holy Spirit will give you the words when the time is right, basically. And and but that's not that's not without all, always or consistently being in the word, right? I mean, it's not that you should just be ready for every single comeback that you could possibly ever have. But if you are well-versed in the Word of God, if you are well-versed in what He has to say, someone's going to say something and all of a sudden you're just going to say, you're just going to blurt it out, you know? And, you know, uh, when we look at Acts, what happens with Acts? I mean, the the disciples, the apostles have have, tons to say and they wind up going all the way back to, you know, the prophets and everything, saying all kinds of things about prophesying to who Jesus Christ is, what He has done, Stephen goes all the way back to Moses and the wilderness and all this stuff, right? But they didn't worry about it beforehand. Do you think Stephen knew what he was going to say right before he said it? Probably not. But he was so well-versed in, because he was a deacon, right? And he was so well-versed in the Bible and gathering, as it said in Acts 2, that they gathered together daily, right? And And heard God's word and shared in the breaking of the bread. And so when you do that daily, of course you're going to be ready. Of course you're going to be ready. And you're also going to have the wisdom to pray to God and say, God, help me when I come to this part, right? So God will not hold against you your mere asking for wisdom either, 
right? He's not going to hold that against you. Um, well, we'll get into that into this next part. But we see here that um, asking God to give us wisdom implies that we are weak and we don't see things clearly. Nevertheless, like I said, God does not find fault with our request for wisdom. Any questions about this? Any thoughts? I like that question in verse in three, you know, are we up to it? Yeah. I just don't know that you know the answer to that until the time comes. I think that's very wise of you to say, actually. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I see a lot of people, ah, they'll have to take my guns when they pry them off my cold dead fingers. I like to see that one. Uh, you know, I've heard that. I've heard people say that, and I'm like, Okay, well, well, when that happens, we'll see who's really yeah. got the yeah got the sport, yeah. you know. I think until the time comes, you really, I mean, I don't know. You just don't know. Yeah, you don't know. Um, in the early church, you know, they um, their idea of martyrdom was very was was kind of interesting. Um, you know, you get the accounts of Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp and. Uh, Perpetua and Felicitas and whatnot of how they endured these severe trials for their faith and like Ignatius of Antioch was um, um, he he uh, he's not he's very well known because as he was on his way to Rome to die he wrote uh, letters to different churches and um, uh, he wrote one to Polycarp in Smyrna who later on when he was older he was martyred as well. But Ignatius basically said, you know, um, I hear that people are, that Christians in Rome are possibly going to try and free me. Tell them not to do that because I don't want to hinder the gospel. I don't want to hinder the confession that will be in my death, basically. And so there was this, there was this idea in, um, in the ancient church where they said, um, they would say, you know, if you are chosen for martyrdom, that is God's will. But if you run into the midst of things and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, that they saw that as not being God's will, that you're trying to seek some glory for yourself. Because what they also saw was that the people who rushed in and said, I'm a Christian, as soon as they were persecuted, they recanted the faith and they went away, right? Sometimes though, you would find people who ran into the midst of things and saying, I want to defend these people. And they would say, are you a Christian too? And they would say, I am a Christian. And they would bring them in. They would recant, but then they would come back and be martyred anyway, right? So it's like, you have this idea of like, you don't know exactly what you're going to do in the midst of it. Yeah. You don't, you have no idea how you're going to feel about it. But there, but therefore you don't, you shouldn't be anxious about it. You should trust that God will take care of you even in the midst of death. Because, I mean, if Jesus Christ has conquered death, what do we really have to fear? Yeah. Yeah. If the worst thing they can do is take our lives, good fame, child and wife, though these all be gone, right? The battle has been won. That's right. As as that great hymn says, right? What do we have to fear? Yeah. And that I think is true wisdom, knowing that this life is not the end all be all. 
right? That we have true, we, we have lasting life in Jesus Christ um, through faith alone, right? It's a great comfort. It is, absolutely. So let's keep on pushing through. As far as wisdom, we ask for wisdom because we are weak and don't see things clearly. God will not hold this against us and will give us what we ask. There is something, however, that will keep us from receiving wisdom. What is that? Doubt. Not asking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you don't ask, you don't receive. That's right. But doubt. And he's really he's specifically talking about doubt here, right? Um, now, we're going to get into this just a little bit. So it's just not believing, right? It's unbelief. It's being of a double mind, like he says, right? Uh, now, what does that mean to have a double mind? Um, a double mind is like saying that you can you can serve both God and the world and everything's going to be okay. Mm. That there's no conflict of interest there whatsoever, right? That's a double-minded man who says that. That's a double-minded man or a double-minded person. Like, and I and I used this this morning at class. It's like these country these 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 more modern country songs that you hear where it's like the guy saying, you know, I want a girl who can, who can drink like a fish on Saturday, but praise the Lord on Sunday. You go, I don't want to be anywhere near that girl. Right? I don't want to be anywhere near her. Why would I want to be near someone who gets drunk and makes a fool of themselves and puts themselves in a bad situation willingly and knowingly, and then the next day they act as if nothing happened. I mean, ideally, they're going to church to repent. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think so. We can do all these bad things and then it doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. It doesn't, yeah. There's nothing to repent of. There's nothing to be sorry for. A little bit of bad's fun and okay. Exactly, yeah. Oh, but didn't Jesus or somebody say something about a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, but whatever. You know, um, no big deal. Uh, It's just one of these things, yeah. You see that people will be of a double mind and saying, I can live in whatever way I want and it's not going to affect my faith whatsoever, right? It's not going to affect what I believe if I, you know, uh, if I go to the strip club on Friday night, you know. I'm still a Christian. I still, I, I still go to church on Sunday. Well, churches are okay. Right, yeah. That's what churches are there for, so yeah. I can get the, the forgiveness of sins. So I might as well rack them up as much as I can before I get to church, right? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. That is, that is I mean, that is a double-minded man. Who says that? Or who says, you know, I can I can lie, steal, and cheat. I can lie, steal, and cheat. I can say all kinds of horrible things about people that I don't like, and then I show up at church on Sunday and everything's fine. There's nothing to repent of. Everything's good, right? Another confession. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I'd like to hear that someone's actually confessing those things, <laughs> you know, and, and actually <laughs> sorrowful for them and repentant of them, right? Otherwise, and. and there's a difference. Don't get me wrong. There's a difference between a struggle and giving in. Yeah. Right? If you struggle with drinking, if you struggle with lying, if you don't want to do it and you work your hardest to set boundaries on yourself and hold yourself accountable with other people and all kinds of stuff like that, that's one thing. If you're going about your life as if that doesn't matter whatsoever, that's another thing. Right? So that's a double-minded person. Someone who wants to, to have it both ways, yeah? So um, this is, I think, 
let, let me ask y'all, we'll see, see what y'all think. Um, when he says, uh, uh, let me see, let him ask in faith, but with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The, the image of the wave and the sea, what story do you think he's talking about there from the Gospels? When Peter starts sinking. That's right. I think so. I think that's possibly that's what he's alluding to, right? Is that, is that when, when they see Jesus walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter is walking on the water miraculously. But then as soon as he sees the wind and the waves, he begins to sink, right? Um, uh, it's one of those things like... Uh, when is it, doesn't Jesus say, like, why did you doubt? Yeah, why did you doubt? Exactly. Yeah, why did you doubt? I mean, and, and there's like a, there's a song, I think it's from, from one of the great contemporary Christian bands back in like the early 2000s, Audio Adrenaline. It's, it's, it's such a great, uh, quintessential uh, 2001, 2000, whatever. Audio Adrenaline. Audio Adrenaline. They have this one song that's called, If I Keep My Eyes on Jesus, I Can Walk on Water. And I was like, hey, that's not a bad thing to keep in mind, Right. But how often are we tempted to look at the wind and the waves? Do we think we're better than Peter? Right? Or do we struggle with that too? Of course we struggle too. And what James is saying here is not that you must be perfect in order to receive wisdom. He's encouraging us. He is admonishing us to kick out doubt whenever you have it come upon you. Right? Just kick it out. Remove it. Remove that that bad seed whenever it comes your way, right? So it's one thing to say, to pray, and to say, Lord God, give me strength to endure the hardships that I'm enduring, you know, trouble at work, trouble with family, whatever it is, and say, and say, Lord God, give me all these things. Give me the wisdom to deal with these things. Amen. And then you go on and you say, does God really hear me? It's one thing to say, does God really hear me? And say, of course he does. Is God really going to help me? Absolutely. He's going to help me. Is God really listening? Yes, he is. Right? So it's one thing to have that, have, have that fly over your head and swat it away right away. And another thing to have it rest in your mind and indulge it. Right? So it's kind of like what I said on uh, my, in the sermon at Easter where I said it's like that old saying from the monks that say, you know, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? As soon as they start trying to land, you swat them away. Get out of here, right? You can't keep those bad thoughts and the doubts from coming. You can keep from indulging them, right? It reminds me of that story in the gospel where he goes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of my... I'm going to try to say, say, say this without getting emotional. Um, I, I've, I have not been a pastor for very long. And I've used this as an example in several of my sermons just because I thought it was such a great testament, 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 testament to faith. Um, but I had the privilege and the honor of being uh, with a brother pastor as he died and I held his hand. Pastor Cluck. 
And um, I kept, and I, I just sat there the whole time singing hymns, you know, saying psalms, reading scripture to him, praying with him, doing the commendation of the dying. And I was there as he breathed his last breath. And one of the last things he said before he was received into glory, I believe, is, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. What amazing, what an amazing thing to say, right? In the midst of his, you know, struggle with life and death, one of the last things he says is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as he's gasping for breath. Uh, it was something I'll never forget. Something I'll never forget. So, I mean, that's, that's just one of those things you just, you just go, that doesn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anyways. Um, but yeah, um, Lord, I believe, help, help my unbelief. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, it is a total commitment for us to pray for wisdom to God. Right? Um, Wisdom is definitely needed to withstand the temptation of falling into apostasy. In fact, it's important we know this because you know what one of the major signs of the end times is? I'll tell you right now, it's not a dragon. It's not, you know, the whore of Babylon. It's not all these other things. I mean, those are key, key, key ones, you know. It's not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, those things are just going to happen in cycles no matter what. Famine and disease and hardship and persecution death and all these things like that. One of the main signs of the end times, mass apostasy. Is that when it says like people will will say good things are bad and bad things are good? Um yeah, kind maybe. Of, yeah. Know, kind of Isaiah talks about that, that now, you know. Um but it's I think it's really in um isn't it in uh remind me what apostasy is. Apostasy is denying the faith. Okay. Falling away from the faith, having having once confessed the faith and then denying it, that's apostasy. So um, when John in in one of his epistles talks about um, antichrist, not the antichrist, but antichrist, those who are against Christ, he does say, um, what does he say? He says. Um, that he will do all these kinds of things to lead away um, even the elect if it can be possible, right? So it's like even those who were chosen and who were chosen to abide and to be faithful, that, you know, there's always the possibility of falling away because you are enticed away from the faith, right? So mass apostasy is one of the signs of the end times. I think we're seeing it. How... How empty are our churches now? How many kids have you seen go through confirmation classes and never set foot in a church again, whether after high school or after college or whatever, right? Um, you look and see at these old, old churches, all the confirmation pictures and the class sizes get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And you never see those kids come back. Typically, there's no guarantee that they will on some level, but I think that's been kind of also a failure of us as the church here on earth to not properly prepare youth for persecution. 
and for temptation, right? So um, that's, that's, that's a tangent I'll go into some other time. But when you pray for wisdom, wisdom is needed as uh, a safeguard against apostasy, right? To be able to handle and withstand the attacks of the evil one, to be able to not be like Eve when he says, did God really say? And you can, and you can be like Jesus, right? And say, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test or whatever have you, right? Any thoughts about that? Questions? We're finally almost to the end. Yeah, yeah it seems like there's more seeds sown among the weeds anymore than there used to be. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of problems we're having to deal with. I think, I don't know, I think on some level the church is being tried um, in a lot of ways that is kind of pointing out where we've gone wrong in some ways in the last maybe 40 to 50 years, you know, it, but it takes time for that fruit to mature to see whether it's good or bad, right? Like you see the church's response to things like the sexual revolution, right? Uh, which has not been good. It's been either lacking or non-existent, right? Um, but it should have been a full pushback against it and a condemnation of it. But you're seeing the church kind of, <laughs> kind of be like what James says don't be like, right? And kind of be of one side and the other. I think you can have it both ways by being friends with the world and friends with God. I had this news feed thing pop up on my phone. And it was something on Chris Pratt. Because I like looked him up because yeah. I wanted to know if he was a Christian or not. That's interesting. So I looked up Chris Pratt and he's like under, under scrutiny because... Apparently, he was involved in a church that was not sensitive to the LGBTQ community. And I was like, well, they shouldn't be. Right. Like, <coughs> but that just goes to show where American Christianity, at least, is kind of at. You know what I'll say about Chris right Pratt? I think, I think he's funny. I think he's kind of talented. It's, he was, it was kind of a celebrity, a celebrity church. Yeah. Thing. Well, you know what's funny about that? At least at at least that church is, you know, not friendly to LGBTQ stuff. But that church should have admonished him for what he did with his wife. You know, and I know you well, know he claimed that he wasn't affiliated with that church. Well, you know what's kind of funny about that? Okay. You, know you know what I say about his his wife? Because he was previously married. I don't know anything about his personal. The only life, thing but... I know is that he got a divorce and then and then he was living with his current wife before they got married and, and, and everyone wants to hold him up as a paragon of Christianity. And I think he's got some repenting to do on that front, oh. you know, because what he was, he was married to one actress and then he got a divorce for some reason. I don't think it was for the reasons that are permitted. Right. And then he goes off and starts living with another girl who, you know, uh, and, and, and then, and then while they're living together, then they get married. And yet he's held up as, you know, a Christian in Hollywood. And I go, well, at the very least, he's in error. You know, that church should have admonished him for for um, for what he did and, and how he went about certain things and whatever. So, um, but I mean, if, if those are our examples nowadays, our, our Hollywood actors, we're in a bad spot, right? Um, yeah, I saw something else on like, uh, was, was it the Grammys? 
<laughs> yeah. Like some Christian, quote unquote, Christian group that won a Grammy, but in the same, at the Grammys, there was another performance done by, I don't even know his name. I don't know any of these people. Yeah, he dressed up like a devil or whatever. It was like a satanic. Yeah. Yeah. thing and it was it was I was looking at a video of some other guy who's trying to expose all this stuff he's like these people shouldn't have even shown up to this yeah. like say shouldn't have even accepted absolutely they shouldn't have, they, they, they shouldn't sh- have been within 50 miles they shouldn't of that have place. even been in the building no they shouldn't have even been in the state of California and he goes like, look <laughs> at them they're, they're all like blamed out and stuff like that he's like yeah this is what this community is trying right. to tell you that Christianity is supposed to look like. That's exactly right. They want them to be it's accepting. Trying to tell you what Christianity. That's exactly is right, and and you know, um, yeah, no, exactly right. And you also have as a response to that demonic performance at the Grammys, which I didn't see. I saw like headlines with a picture of it or whatever. Dude's dressed like the devil, you know. And yet, when you call this out, you're 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 labeled on some level by the upper echelon of the church it's like oh well you're a sensationalist and i go they're putting this on every screen on 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 every tv that'll have it on there and you think that that's nothing right but you'll have a lot of high-minded christians who will say you know it's just like oh well that's nothing we should really be too concerned about and you go you wonder why we have nobody in church you wonder why we have nobody in church because you take these things so lightly that you don't even speak against it. I'm not even saying boycott the Grammys necessarily. I'm just saying don't watch them, right? And denounce that to say if it looks like the devil and it sounds like the devil, it's probably the devil. Give me a break, man. And don't think that your PhD is gonna is gonna persuade me otherwise. Sorry, but that's just one of my things. Um, Anyways, so here we go. Um, let's finish up here, okay? We've got enough tangents. Read Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Who wants to, to read Romans 5, 3 through 5? And then who wants 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9? I'll say 1 Peter. So you got 1 Peter. Good choice. It's very. It's right after James. That's where I was getting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to backtrack so much. Yeah. What about Romans? Who wants Romans? I'm not very good at reading today. I gotta shut my eyes. Oh, that's okay. You don't have to read. That's all right. Romans three. Oh, sorry. Romans five. Sorry, you're right. Romans five verses three through five. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that. Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has, who was given to us. Right. So that's Romans five verses three through five. How about First Peter one six through nine? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Great. So you have heard people say that there is a silver lining around every cloud. Why is this especially true for the trials that Christians endure for their faith? always a way out. I mean, the silver lining is it's good. (laughs) (laughs) It won't destroy you. (laughs) Right. Everything in this world will will be done away with and renewed. So there really is no need to worry about the cloud. (laughs) Yeah. That's, That's a good way to put it. Anybody else? Why should we see silver lining? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oh, my mother hates that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, ideally, temptation and hardship would would drive you closer to Christ and strengthen your faith. That's right. Absolutely, yeah. How else is your faith supposed to be strengthened? Yeah, yeah. Without a trial. That's right, yeah. I mean, Peter says it right there. He says, uh, what is it? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting how several times in Scripture, I think even St. Paul says it um, elsewhere in his epistles, that you know, we should build our faith on the foundation, right, with precious things, with gold and silver and the things that will last. Because in the end, there will be a fire that will come that will purify us. And it's going to burn away all the stuff that's useless, right? So if you build up on your faith with straw and, you know, bits of trash, I guess you could say, or things that are kind of insignificant and you don't build up with the precious things of gold and silver and steel or whatever. If you don't build the, build on the foundation that has been given to you with the things that will face persecution and trial, then you better be careful, right? Because when the fire comes, you may wind up with less than you ever really thought you had. Yeah. So that's not to scare you. It's, it is to scare you. It's to scare you into building up your, it's to fortify yourself with the things that matter. Um, what does Jesus say? Um, that this world will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Right? Um, that if his word will endure forever. In fact, that's that's like the one of the main mottos of the Reformation. Like, y'all know what I'm talking about? The word of the Lord endures Forever. Have you all seen that? Where it's like this, it's like this cross here, and then you have like V D M A. It's on one of your stoles. It is on one of my stoles. Yeah, I think it's on the red one, right? Um, I, I'm gonna try and get the Latin right. Verbum Domine Manet Manet Eternum. The word of the Lord endures forever. Right. 
so it's in Latin. But it's one of those things like that's 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 what the that's what the Reformation was built upon, the Word of God. And because the church has been built, you know, the Word of God has built the church up, right? The we we cannot do anything apart from the Word, and we cannot have wisdom apart from the Word, um, either spoken or read or whatever, right? And so if we are abiding in other things that will not last when the fire comes, we're going to get burned up, right? Well, that's why it's a, the resurrection is so important. Yeah. Because after all of that death and horrible suffering and everything, that's, right. that's what we have to look forward to. Yeah, we have, look, we have you know, what is it? Uh, it's, it's like the hymn, the hymn says, you know, glorious now we press toward glory, right? Um, yeah. So um, our faith is purified through suffering. Uh, and there are different ways that the writers make the connection between suffering and growth and faith, you know, burning away things. Suffering produces character, character produces, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope so on and so forth, right? It's definitely worth reminding ourselves of these things. Um, so uh, as, 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 as a last thing that I'll close on for tonight, because we are way over time, and um, I'm, just, I'm just excited to talk about this, but the last thing I'll close on is that when James, I, I think it's, faith, it's safe to say that when James talks about the man who asks in wisdom and receives, that might be a reference to himself. Because at one point in time, it's probably safe to say that James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Isn't there reference to that in, in the New Testament? Um, I think so. maybe like, very like even his, his brothers and stuff thought he was like crazy and out of his well, yeah. mind. And... That's, when, that's when Mary and his brothers come and try and take him away from when he's teaching and things like that. And, and they say that you're... Mother and your brothers are here to get you, basically. It was that. It was that. I think it was in that sense, too. There's also when one of the feasts was coming up and the brothers were like, Hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to the feast? Because what kind of prophet are you if you don't go up to Jerusalem? <laughs> and I think there was a footnote in the whatever gospel because the brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. Mm. Look at that for me, yeah. Because I, I off off the top of my head, I can't remember. I I want to say there is a reference, but I mean, at the very least, James. It's safe to say that James was yeah. skeptical. John chapter seven. Okay. Uh, but then there was the Jewish feast of Tabernacles. Jesus's brothers said to him, "You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do." No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers to not believe in him. That's right. Yeah, even his own brothers do not believe in him. That's right. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles was when everybody was living in like tents, right? Yeah. You would like... It was to, um, it was to commemorate the, uh, the sojourning in the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So James did not believe in Jesus while he was alive before the crucifixion. But it's safe to say that it's it's very highly possible, I think it did actually happen, where James was one of the ones that Jesus appeared to after he was resurrected. He appeared to so many people, right? And he, I would think he had to, 
if James became such a prominent member of the church, a leader in the church, that when he writes his, his um, letter, it says, James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So one, one time he did not believe, and then by God's grace, he did. Right? So um, this is something to keep in mind uh, because he, because I think also in Matthew 12 through 13, he was probably in uh, hearing distance of Jesus's preaching of the parables and whatnot too. So he heard all these things, but he didn't have the wisdom to understand it until after the fact, right? That he asked for it and God gave him the wisdom that he needed to believe. So if it can happen for James, it can happen for y'all, Right? That if he's at the height of unbelief by seeing Jesus do all these things, but he doesn't believe because of his affinity, you know, to him as a brother, saying like, you know, yeah, basically, he's a nice guy. He's, I mean, he's my brother, but the son of God? I don't know, right? Maybe out of jealousy or whatever, but it was unbelief nonetheless. But God gave him the gift of faith for sure. And he will give it to you too. So from one who was not believing to now believing, he encourages us to go through trials with a spirit of joy. Um, and if we need wisdom, we should ask for it. Uh, but, we, but we must never waver between faith that God will help us and the unbelief that doubts God's love and care. Be of one mind and your mind is with Christ, held, held captive to Christ. All right, any Closing thoughts or questions? Pretty good start, huh? Yeah, that was good. All right, so next time we're going to go through the rest of James, uh, the book of James, not the whole cha- not the whole book. The first chapter of James, sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh, Five hour long. Yeah, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, it'll be like 10. But um, so we're going to go through the rest of James chapter one. So next time do those next two sheets Verses 9 through 18, and then 19 through 27. And then every week after that, we will go through one chapter. So that means two sheets per week, okay? Uh, all the way to the end. And that, 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 should, that should take care of us all the way, all the way up until when, I, when we go on vacation here. So. Um, so we're going through 27 next week. Yeah, we'll go through the rest of chapter 1 next week. So be sure to go read ahead. Um, please read ahead, go through the questions for discussion, come ready to discuss. If you have questions from this, bring them with you. And, you know, I know that y'all aren't ashamed, but I just want to say, you know, just ask questions because what you have to ask, maybe somebody else is, you know, wondering at the same time as well. So, um, and that's what we're here for. We all, we all benefit from asking questions. Um, don't be a double-minded man, <laughs> but come, come and be ready to discuss and say, pastor, I don't understand this, you know, and like, well, maybe I can help you out and maybe we can help each other out. Right. Um, but that's, that's all for tonight. Um, and we will close now with the Lord's prayer. So taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our father, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.